Dispatches from Planet Funk. This is the Ace Out Podcast. Dedicated to all whom the man tried to ace out by profiting from the soul without stopping to give props to the prophets of soul. Uh, ooh. You hear that? This is your boy Ace Allen, a.k.a. Barack Wayne. And we're brought to you by the letter P. And we're okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, check this out, guys. I got to tell you something. I'm going to be honest with you. I quit the show, okay? I wasn't going to do any more episodes. But I got brought back. Like Godfather Part 3. Just when I tried to get out, they pulled me back in. They pulled me back in to interview Don Silva. I just got done interviewing her just now. She's in the studio signing books, listening to some of her new tracks, hanging out with the folks. I quit the show, you guys. I got really tired. After all the big productions we did last year, we did uh, Star Colors, Juan Escovito, JW, Chocolate, Stevie Pinnell, Rusty Allen, Levi, Levi Caesar, and Ricky Vincent. And after doing all those shows, I almost died. But I came back, y'all, and I'm glad to be here. I just want to go over a couple things before we get to the interview with the Queen of Funk, Don Silva. I want to shout out Silent Boatman of P-Funk Forums. Silent Boatman uh, shouted out Ace Out Podcast big time on something called P-Funk Forums. You can Google that online. And he put a bunch of links to our shows and shouted us out. So thank you. A big thank you to Ricky Vincent. Uh, Ricky, on our last episode, that was a fantastic interview with wonderful performances with uh, the Funkonauts and Dub Esquire, Monster, and Mel Yell. Uh, speaking of that, the Funkonauts, talking about Jay Stone, Coyote, Chris Wagner, Rick Campbell, and myself, we played with those three rappers uh, at the Longboard in Pacifica, and that was a great show. That was last February, so shout out. And speaking of that, I want to give props to Richard Segovia. Uh, Richard, the mayor of the mission, he walks it like he talks it, and he's a true community leader, and most people don't aren't willing to do what he's willing to do to stay positive, so shout out to you, Richard Segovia. Shout out to Rusty Allen. Rusty, uh, I'm humbled to say, has asked me to co-host the fifth episode of his YouTube show. And I just did that earlier this week. Uh, that should be out by now, by the time this episode airs. Um, and we talk about uh, Rusty's participation in this slide documentary that Questlove is working on. Questlove flew uh, Rusty out to New York to interview him for that movie. So that's going to be dope. Um, big props to want to say what's up to Stevie Pinnell again. It seems like every time I see a picture of Stevie Pinnell, he's wearing an Aced Out Podcast t-shirt. So thank you, Stevie. People still loving his version of Maggot Brain that he played with us here in this studio. Uh, shout out to Femi Andredes. Remember to like and subscribe our YouTube channel. We also have audio episodes available on aceoutpodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Shout out to Nick Ways, Scott Shepard in the house making the show happen. We're in legendary different first studios, Grace behind the board. We got Cedric Letch and Jared Rogers behind the camera. In the studio, 
making her first appearance, my sister, Tracy Allen, and three charged. They're here in the flesh. Do you believe that? <laughs> That's my sister giggling. All right. I can't wait anymore. Forget all that stuff. I can't wait. We have to get to it. Let's interview Don Silva, the funk queen. She's going to be sitting right there. Okay, guys. We're about to talk to an OG with the real deal inside scoop of making the real uncut funk. Someone who is in the room helping to make all of your fave classics and hip hop samples happen. Just another Bay Area funketeer who has traveled the world and has been featured across all P Funk platforms. I'm talking about her badass, bold rock and roll soul singing on albums such as Motor Booty Affair. Mm-hmm. Funkintelliki versus the Placebo Syndrome. There it is. One Nation Under a Groove. Oh, Rocket Baby. Uncle Jam. Oh, won't you? What about Eddie Hazel's beloved solo album, Games, Dames, and Guitar Things? California Dreaming, baby. The Horny Horns albums. <laughs> the Sweatband album. What about the Sweatband album? But perhaps most of all, she's the OG and longest running member of Brides of Funkenstein, talking about funk or walk. Live at the Howard Theater and never buy Texas from a cowboy. Never do that. Um, But did you also know? So you probably knew that. But did you also know she was also part of Sly and the Family Stone on such albums as High on You, Heard You Miss Me, Now I'm Back? Did you also know she was also part of the Gap Band? Was, not was. Remember was, not was with Mm. Don Was? She's toured Brazil with the Platters. Mm. Oh, my God. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, and this is one of my favorites, and I really mean this. Thank you. Uh, her solo album, All My Funky Friends. Now, that is a classic. It's among uh, the very best of the P-Funk solo albums, in my opinion. Wow, thank you. And a must-have that still sounds contemporary to this day. It's still banging in your trunk. Hmm. Um, and she is here promoting, well, to me it's scripture, the funk queen Don Silva. Hmm. Look at this package here. Isn't that pretty? Yeah. This is what you get, and we're going to talk about this. Okay. Looking forward to it. And this, oof, this is heavy, by the way. Oh, my God. Yes, <laughs> I got seven, asthma. I can't carry stuff pounds, like this. Seven pounds, one ounce, yes. All right. Who? The funk queen Don Silva. This is over 500 pages. Uh, it's an epic tale, really. Um, it's a beautiful, high-quality package. Uh, New Rising Publications, right? Yes, New Rising Publishing, um, yes. Selling out in bookstores as we speak, right? Yes, sir. Yes, this sir. is an epic tale rich with deep funk history and filled with both amazing and tragic stories and a slew of brushes with funk and soul greatness, I tell you. Um, this book will inspire ladies young and old and imbue the fellas with a greater respect for her legacy. And um, I just wanted to introduce you guys, and I'm so honored to be back talking to Don Silva. Welcome. Uh, Ace Allen, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. Oh, my God. I can't make eye contact. Oh, what? I'm so shy. Well, anyway, I want to take my glasses <laughs> oh, my gosh. oh, my gosh. <laughs> I can't believe you're here. First of all, yeah. I just want to underline, because I know that you wanted to talk about uh, some people might be a little mixed up on uh, exactly what they're getting, what kind of book it is, how uh-huh. it's a table book. So yes. can you describe it and talk to about us um, why you should purchase this book? And you should get a copy yourself right now on DonSilva.com, y'all. Yes, sir. Um, a lot of people don't know what a table book is first. 
mostly table books are very expensive, for one, and they usually have uh, mostly pictures and photos and classic photos that a lot of people haven't seen of mostly of artists or even flowers, but they're they uh, have maybe slight little dialogue or to, to explain what that flower is about. Or sure, that like a caption. Yeah, a yeah, caption yeah. or a particular person uh, in the in that picture. And usually it's from, uh, it could be anything, cats, dogs, whatever, but that's what a table book is. And it usually has about two, 300 pitch of, uh, pages. Um, but mine is not only a, a table book with uh, photos, classic photos, but it's also... Mm-hmm. Uh, has the autobiography, and there's about maybe five books within that one book. That's why it weighs so much. Um, Just actually getting the pictures, first of all, was a story on itself in terms of a photographer who once traveled around with P-Funk for about five years who took photos of everyone who opened up for Parliament Funkadelic between 1976 and 1981. Who was that? Uh, this guy was named uh, Stephen Stephen LaBelle. Okay. And he was from, ba- from Baltimore, and he was a fan. He was also an ex-military uh, police officer and a Baltimore police officer okay. who gave up and retired and went on the road to take pictures. And he was a— f- That's a f- interesting. He was a funketeer, and, he, and, a, and a fun- to me, he said he was a fanatic. So he went out on the road with us for, for all those years, and he took all these photos, and uh, his health took a turn for the worst, and he had been sitting— on those photos for about, gosh, 30 years. Wow. So he says, are you still writing your book, Dawn? And I said, yeah, I am. He So he, he asked me to make him a promise that if he sent those photos to me, would I put them in my book? So I said, sure, I'm thinking 2030, why not? You know, those are the traditional books, basically just have the photos, as you know, in, a, in an autobiography, yeah. smack dab in the middle. But when I he started, he started sending them to me daily from FedEx, and they were uh, on CDs, and there was 3,000 of them. Oh, my God. I was like, what the heck? So I started actually <laughs> coloring the fo- the pictures within the dialogue because, you know. Uh, oh, so you use it kind of like an outline yeah, to get going. Yeah, because, you know, on. pictures are worth a 1,000 words. And sure. so while I'm talking about, for exam- example, the mutiny on the mothership, mm-hmm. where I remember there was a part. That was a crazy, crazy story. Yeah, that's a deep story where George actually walked to the edge of the stage and he threw up his arms Mm -hmm. and he had that picture. Wow. So imagine doing that for 500 pages of trying to find the right photos to put in the book. And then once I did that, I realized when I went to to production to produce the book, they said, you're going to have to do a table book because it won't bind. We can't close it off. It's too big. Oh, I and you're going to have to take out 100 pictures. And I said, how do I do that when they're all so classic? How do I do that? Right. She says, it's going to be far too expensive to produce. And they don't do table books like this. Autobiography table books basically don't exist. There's some mingling about, I'm sure there are, but they don't do them anymore. They cost too much. And I said, well, and she says, I'm sure you won't even get a publishing deal for this. It's just too big. Right. And she's right. Everybody said the same thing. You can't do it. Take it out just do a table book or just do the autobiography. I said, but there's some kind of magical magic to the marriage of what I'm writing about and you're talking about it, and there's the photo. That so, makes so much sense because um, it's such an unusual and bold package. And that's what I was thinking when I checked it. I can't believe she did this. I can't believe she wrote a whole uh, epic saga, but also had it like with these beautiful pictures and it's all bound together 
all in one package. It's a really bold move, Don. I can't believe I did it either. <laughs> you must be proud of yourself. <laughs> I am. I'm just really happy that I was able to put it together. And then I realized that when I once I did actually start trying to remove the photos, and the as every photo I yeah. removed, I lost a little of the magic. Mm-hmm. So I basically uh, found the monies as best I could, and just it took a while to get that together, to actually to be able to finance it, and mm-hmm. then um, start putting it together. And then I had to go find someone to actually manufacture it. I couldn't find anybody in the states, so I went to China. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I, that book was manufactured in China, and so I went over there, and they said, "Well, we'd love to do it," and they 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 did an incredible job, and then they sent it back they to sure me. Sure did. And I was like, "Oh my God, what have I done?" <laughs> oh my God. Now what do we do? And when I was talking to you the other day, it sounded like almost like in a weird way, this book is almost ruining your life right now. It's like you're running this way and that, like promoting it, getting requests for interviews. It's like you're trying to get some rest too. Well, this book has completely <laughs> taken over my life, but the fact that the fans, when they go to buy the book, they don't realize that it's a table book autobiography. And the reason why it costs And 90, you sign each one? I sign every one that I can, and I number it because it's a limited edition. I could yep. only do, I only can afford to do 1,500 of these books, you know. Another and, reason why you need to buy it right now. Yeah, I only could afford to do 1,500, and I thought that since it's going to be a limited collector's edition, and you, once this book is done, you know, uh, warts and all, as someone said, in terms of the uh, typos, or there's some typos in there. You know, I'm such a perfectionist. If I see, like, oh, an italic error. Oh, oh I no. know the feeling. You're like, ah. Then I was like, you know, but anyway, for that matter, it's, it's, um, it's expensive, you know, but the funk is expensive. The funk is like uh, the Rolls Royce of the music industry. Okay. So I figure that, you know, if you're going to go in to buy a Rolls Royce and you got money to buy a Ford Explorer or something. Sure, <laughs> you, okay, a Ford Explorer. You're not going to walk into a... <laughs> Into a place where they sell Cornish Rolls Royces with with that with that type of money in your pocket is going to cost you, so that's why I did this. I wanted to do something classy and and, yeah. and different and it's and, real and, classy and unique yeah, and special yeah. because all of those photos. I did the same thing. Even the quality of the paper. It's, like it's really high gloss high quality. paper. Yeah. The paper is expensive. It's beautiful. But then I wanted those those photos to jump off the page at yeah. you. Yeah. Some of them are like three D, right? Yeah, yeah. So I just uh, knew that I, it was a little ambitious for me, and I've, I've, I thought that it would work, and then maybe that it wouldn't, but I took a chance because everyone said that I, I couldn't do it, and it wouldn't work, and it's working. You uh, did it. And let me working. say something. I don't want to undersell it. Like you mentioned typos. This is a very well-written book. It has a great voice. Like the way the stories are laid out, it's very interesting. It's like really easy to follow and really look with some poignant quotes. I, I, I do a lot of reading myself. I'm a, an editor and writer uh, professionally myself. So I got to say, in my opinion, this is a high quality story. I really like, I'm not going to spoil it, but I really like how you ended the book too. The last scene of the book. Great way, great ending, great pacing. That it's, it's very was, well done. That was another. Uh, how do you how do you end the book? The right. beginning and the middle are. I was wondering that when, easy, I, when like, I was reading it. How do you stop it? Because yeah. I could have probably added another hundred pages and another fifty pictures easily. Right. 
but I knew that. No, I, I like how where you ended it. I that think was like it, a, where it ended. I think it was uh, on a high note. Yeah, it really high a, note. It has a Cinderella ending. Yeah, I was like, all right. That's when what it, I love about. When I read the book. that last page, I was like, yeah, okay, it does right have on. a Cinderella ending. It's just like it wasn't the whole "what was me" syndrome all the way through. Right, right. That's what I love about that. It ending. was a great, just so great. Uh, okay, okay. So I'm going to ask you about a bunch of stuff. I know we got you here. Um, you got to watch your uh, son. Uh, he's pro bowl, semi pro bowl, and that's important. Yes. So um, I want to talk to you about every. Thing. So I'm going to do that. First things first, though, because it really fascinated me and it jumped out to me. So um, one thing I'm always greedy for, Don, is sort of like people in the room when the, the real stuff was getting made and what insight they could provide um, certain recording sessions with certain songs were being created. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a lot of time when they talk about funk, we're talking about partying and drugs and stuff. And that's amusing. But I really like to talk about how the music's made and one thing I really like about your, your book is you bring a lot of that. So one thing that I thought was absolutely fascinating and you presented it as an oral history is the story about how the song Deep was recorded. Yes. So first of all, you guys, the song Deep, it's the last song. It's an epic tune on the end of Motor Booty Affair. One of my favorite songs on the album. I love that song. Dun, 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 dun. But OK, so I didn't know. And you you told us this is not a George Clinton production at all. This is actually Junie. Junie Morrison put this together. Yes. And then you ladies, you P-Funk ladies, you actually created the vocals, right? Not just sang the vocals, but created those we parts. We created the melodies of those parts. Now, now, Junie would write the lyrics. Yeah, go ahead. And then he would tell you to go out there and sing whatever you feel. Paint the picture like the session. So like, well, just, wh- just for example, it's just like you're going to paint a house and somebody tells you to paint a house and they're going to give you the money, but you get to choose, you get to choose the yeah. colors. And they're not, they're not, they didn't go and give you the brushes and the colors and tell you how to paint and do the trim and all that. You, it leaves it up to you to, to design that. And to me, that's actually creating to make it a, as in layman terms, but like, for example, for me, Junie would uh, come up with the lyric and then he, uh, a line. I'm so deep, you're so deep. You know, everybody is deep. No, those are his lyrics and melodies. And then after that, you could actually create around that. You can come up with your own lyrics, your own melodies, and color around what he's already created. To me, that's co-writing. Yep. But then we did that and just having fun and not realizing that we were actually coming up with some of the melodies that everybody's singing along with. And I didn't realize that until long after we were gone. But during that particular session, uh, Junie was a genius and he could actually pick out the individual that he felt that could probably deliver the, the best part. And it wasn't just singing the lyrics or the words, it's the character right. and the tone that goes with the funk um, songs. It's not just a funky groove by right. no stretch of the imagination. It's also the whole feel that you're creating when you're doing a funk song. So Deep pretty much was talking about, you know, that song is very sexual. Mm-hmm. And most of those songs from P-Funk, as you know, was about sex. <laughs> right. So this is about a worm. <laughs> You know, that having sex under the water, right? And not getting wet. How does it, how's that possible? So, anyway, that's what the song's about. Who was there? Shirley Hayden uh-huh. was there? Shirley Hayden. It was Jeanette uh, Washington. Jeanette Washington Perkins. It was Malia Franklin. Wow. And it was Dawn Silva. And it was like, you, he's having you go up one at a time. And of course, kinda... we can't forget Lynn Mabry as no, well. No, Lynn Don't Mabry. Don't forget Lynn. Yeah, no, Lynn. no, 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 no. Yes. Yeah, Lynn so Mabry was there too. Those five vocalists actually that day. And then our road manager, 
Cheryl James was. Cheryl a, James, she right? She could sing her, uh, she, you know, her behind off. So she actually put some parts on there as well. So there was some very powerful female uh, in that organization, and not just the the, the uh, background singers. Or even though you know, there's a saying in that book where I said we were background singers even when we were singing lead. Right, right. Um, what that's what we did the day on that session for Deep. You know, we created uh, the melodies that that uh, were on that song. That's amazing. And so George wasn't at that session. That particular session, it was just Junie Morrison and the five singers. That's fascinating. And see, it's there's a story after story like this, guys, in the book. So, for example, um, I I didn't realize because it's one of my favorite songs. I didn't know you were on Crossword Puzzle, ah. Crossword Puzzle, the Sly Stone Jam. Yeah. And that session, I think if I remember right, if I have it here right, that was your first like real paid recording session. Is that right? Or one of the first ones? One of the first. The, not only just that one. That was, was in San Francisco here? That was at, no, in Sausalito. Oh, Sausalito. At the, at the record plant in oh, wow. Sausalito. And actually, it was two that day. It was uh, starting off with uh, Hoboken, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. That's all. Yeah, yeah. That one. And then Crossword Puzzle. Yeah. So and, yeah, uh, those are my first two. Wow, wow. And they were kind of showing you the ropes, how to do it and stuff I like that. I didn't have a clue. What I, was, <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't have, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So, um, yeah, I just actually went down there with a friend who asked me that I want to meet Sly. He was putting together, uh, doing a new album, a debut album, and he needed some, wanted a different sound. So he asked us, uh, a friend of mine came in, his name was Michael Samuels. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, Sly's doing a new album. You want to meet him? I said, who doesn't want to be Sly Stone, right? So we drove down, and um, just so happened that that particular day, um, Vet uh, was hoarse. Vet Stone? Vet Stone. She couldn't hit those top notes. Right, right. So the Michael says, kind of in a small little whisper, like, hey, Sly, you know Dawn can sing those top notes. And I'm looking at him like he's out of his mind. I was like... <laughs> Oh, so you were just at the session. I just went to the session Got to it. go meet Sly, and it was just, you know, I had no idea I was going down there to sing or audition or any of that. Wow. I had no—who knew that, that the vet was going to be hoarse and she couldn't hit those top notes? I mean, that sounds nerve-wracking. Well, sometimes I feel like, was it a set-up? They <laughs> did this on purpose? But anyway, long story short, I actually uh, went up and I, I sang the parts like my life depended on it, and I did it. Realized that I was singing wrong. I, I didn't. I didn't know how to to blend with the section. Oh, like yeah, yeah. You know, like blend and, I, the voices. and I grew up singing in concert choirs and uh, classical music in high school and you know church. So you know nobody was blending. Everybody was singing at their, their sure. full, full capacity, right? Blowing it out. Right? <laughs> That's what I did. That's what I knew how to do at that time. And then I learned that uh, working with Sly Stone and working with some of the girls, which was Little Sister. Right, uh, little sister. Remember, little sister. Sly. Yeah, I, and I've interviewed Vet once before, a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, they were phenomenal. Oh yeah, yeah. That, mm -hmm. They should have. They're another uh, unsung group that should have blown up very big. They were very, very powerful, yes, yes. powerful sisters. So, uh, one of the sisters, Tiny, mm -hmm. uh, Tiny Matone. But yes, and she basically said to me, and then Sly basically reiterated that, uh, well, you have to sound like one core harmony structure, one chord, like one voice. Not if you hear your voice sticking out under in, in that section, that means you're singing too loud. It has to blend and sound like one chord harmony structure. 
and I was all over the place. I was just you can hear right. you can hear me all over the place. <laughs> so <laughs> they kind of had to pull myself back, and then I I had to learn on the spot how to blend, and I did. And so maybe say like an hour after that session was over, Sly said, "Welcome to Sly and the Family Stone." Wow! And that's how I got that gig. Oh my gosh! You must have been over the moon, right? Or did you did you believe that that was true? <laughs> did you believe that that was true when you heard it, or did you know what I mean? Like, did it seem like solid, or is it? At the time, I was just so mesmerized. At first, I met Sly. Then, second, that I I got to sing with some of the greatest females in the business, and on one of Sly's songs, and I'm, I was think I was more enamored about listening to the engineer, the, the technical part of him blending and the voices, and I could hear myself. Really? Distinct, I could mm -hmm. hear my note. I was so caught up in it just... So the technical aspects caught you. The technical your eye. aspect at, yeah. at first, and until I, until I really realized where I was and what had just happened. And I didn't really take Sly serious at that time, you know, just like mm -hmm. it couldn't possibly be. Right, that's what I was wondering. Like I maybe you'd be like, could, nah, they're nah, just being it, nice or something. It right? couldn't happen that fast. Right, right. It wasn't that simple. But you were eventually pulled into the club. And is that how you met Lynn, by the way? Did, is that situation? Yeah, I met Lynn about a year later. Okay. When Sly, I actually had been still doing a lot of session work. I continued to do the session work with Sly. And another lady named Gail Muldrow. Uh, Gail Muldrow, I know yeah, who that is. Yeah, yeah, you know? guitarist. She yeah, she was in Grand Central Station. She was in Grand Central Station. Yeah. She went out and played with Prince, too. Wow. And now Gail plays with the Brides of Funkenstein. Right to this to this day, she Damn. still plays with me. That's so cool. One of the most phenomenal guitar players in the business. Uh, strong, powerful women, and uh, I met her and a uh, and uh, Sly's uh, sisters and uh, Rose uh, Vet and the little sister, which was Lucy and Tiny. We went on and finished singing uh, quite a few of those songs on that first album, and then Lynn right. came in later. I met her later. Okay. I want to um, I want to circle back and ask you some more stuff about Sly, but there there were just so many other interesting things you mentioned. So there were some recordings that I'm trying to figure out. There were like lost recordings that you mentioned that I really want to hear, or I just got to know about. So for example, you mentioned a song, uh, "Love Is Something," that was like you, Lynn, and Eddie Hazel like yeah, singing together, yeah. and that was like for his like a single or something, but it never got put out. Well. What is that? Is that before his solo album? Like Yeah, that so was So it's just like a one off What is the song? Let me love? think. Let me let me back up a little bit. Is there uh, no way we can hear it? It's gone. Is that No, Love is something actually on the George Clinton put it on the George Clinton series. Oh, um, one of the family, family series. Family series, okay, yeah. Okay. Uh, way down the line much later, but that song But it wasn't put out at the time. No, that song was actually written by a guy named Jim Callen. And Jim was a recording engineer that lived in Los Angeles at the time. And he was doing Eddie's Game Dames and Guitar Things. He did that album. He did the Horny Horns. Mm -hmm. This was after Game Dames and Guitar Things. Okay. Because George was getting a deal for the brides. And that single was a song that he used to, to seal the deal with Atlantic to get Records. The deal. Atlantic came down and heard that song while we were in the studio. And what that, was it like? Was it like a up-tempo, uh, like a love was, song? Love is, it's a mid-tempo ballad, love ballad uh. that was phenomenal. And I really do believe, I just said it in the book, that if that song would have been allowed to see the light of day. At the time when it was supposed to come out. At the time that it was, was, was scheduled, because that was the single that was slated for the Brides of Funkenstein's single release. Right. That was the first one. Featuring Eddie Hazel 
And, wow, and that would the, have been amazing. And the Brides of Funkenstein, which would have catapulted right. both groups with right. Eddie doing his solo thing and then the Brides doing ours as well. That was the single that was supposed to come out on us. But then the single just kind of disappeared. Do you, why did it disappear? Or why would something like that even happen? Why well, would, yeah, I read the book. <laughs> no, I, I read it, but it's like, here's one thing that was bothering me, like when I'm reading the book, okay? Uh-huh. I know it's a fact, but it's just so frustrating to try to really figure out why you were stymied so much, stifled so much, why people, um, why George, uh, you mentioned Archie Ivy, were so against if it's their idea in the first place to start this group and you guys just take it and run with it, um, well, was know, it just more money to be made, more happiness, more music, more? Well, I thought maybe after I explained so many similar scenarios in the book, you'd under people will understand. So I'm glad you're asking that in case someone has the same questions. Um, back in those days, women were pretty much... Uh, deemed uh, second class Mm -hmm. uh, in every level in terms of even abuse and just uh, being creative. If you were too strong, if you were too powerful, then you pretty much were deemed a threat. The fact is, is that during in that organization, during that time, it wasn't just the powerful women, the the musicians and the, everybody in that group was powerful. They were all thoroughbreds. But then if you start actually taking these treasures, because I look at it like, Clinton had this huge treasure chest with all of these precious stones and gems. Everyone was in there. Everybody that was in that treasure chest could be a star in their own right. But then think about these are my treasures. And so if you open up the top of that treasure chest, it with the light was, would blind you. They were so talented. And I believe that he would take out one here or one there Mm -hmm. at a time. And then maybe just showcase them a little bit, but then that way they would, he would, maintain the control so if you start putting these groups out and you let them grow like seeds you start planting them they're going to take off but then you might lose the control once they become successful i didn't see it that way maybe he did right personally to me that i i saw the funk organization as this huge tree with all the branches branching off and clinton was the was the foundation of it which he would, to me personally, if he would allowed all of these groups to grow to their full capacity, he would probably be a household name right now. So I can't explain it to you personally in terms, and even in the book or even right I'm, now, why right. he did that. But as far as my experiences, we were pigeon-held. We were sh- shortstop. We were shut down. The more successful we became, the more they sought to shut it down. Even we were winning music awards. Right. And uh, one year we won three R&B awards in a row, you know, best female group, best single, best album. People would want to interview you. Everybody they- wanted to interview us, but then we were told we didn't do interviews. So they, of course, I think I'm following going out of sequence in terms of what you wanted to talk about. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. But uh, yeah, we had some uh, road managers that used to sneak the publishers or the not the publishers, right. the photographers or the journalists. We had to sneak them in the dressing room so they can do interviews on us. Did and people and, like Cheryl James help with that? Cheryl James and another lady named Andrea Thomas were the, the nucleus. They were the ones that were going out and actually bringing these, uh, these uh, photographers and these journalists into the dressing rooms. But they had to sneak them in. That's so... If they got caught, wow. if they got caught 
sneaking them in, then, then they would be in trouble. So um, I talk about that quite a bit. I mean, in a world that thrives on success, why would you deliberately sabotage your female artist? And the way that the, the best way and the shortest way that I can explain that today is called control, mm-hmm. power, greed. Simple so, as that. As simple as that. And there's a, there's another one that was mentioned too uh, that didn't come out. Wild thing, like a Gary Scheider that started <laughs> and you guys finished, kind of. Yeah, it was a it was a Malia Franklin who was another thoroughbred that. Right. You know, she was just phenomenal, and then yeah, I wanted to talk about the females a lot too because they uh, they have a book coming out um, at the end of the year called The Mothership Connected. <laughs> The, women, the end of this year? Yeah, okay. or the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Okay, Seth yeah. Neblett is actually writing that book. Mm-hmm. And I'm Neblett. in that book, too, along with the five other girl, females. So, so mine is just like I, how I started my book out. I am but one of five females born under the Parliament Funkadelic Empire. Uh-huh. And this is my story, right? I am just one of five funk queens. I like how this empire. You say in one part in the book, you say, "I wonder what the songs would sound like without us on them." I w- I off. I already know what it would sound like. It's <laughs> 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 just a statement, you know. I already know what it would sound like if they took those female vo- vocals out. These were some powerful, strong women, and they were suppressed, and that makes me sad. Me too. So that's why I, I, the legacy I wanted to leave. I wanted people to understand about these women and how strong they were and how they, how, what they helped to create. They helped to push that empire to the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And then they didn't get the recognition. They got some sprinklings and stuff, you know. Of course, it was a boys club back in those days, right? Right. So we had to work even harder. But the fact is, is that they, they were still powerful. But you know, it got me all over the place. But going back to Malia Franklin um, and the session with Gary Scheider. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, uh, that's in the book, too. That's a funny story, too. Um, Malia picked me up from the airport in uh, Detroit, and we drove to this to Superdisc Studios. And Superdisc, right. We were listening uh, to some, uh, a bunch of tracks, and then we picked out one that we didn't even know was Gary Scheider's track. I mean, back in those days, they used to have a truckload of uh, songs in the can. So we were just uh. pulling around, and we saw one, and I said, you like that one, Malia? I said, that one's good. So we, like, we started actually coming up with the melodies and the lyrics, and we start, And the engineer says, well, why don't you, you know, George and those guys are not here. Why don't you just go in there and start putting some parts down? And we said, okay. So we did, and so we co-wrote the lyrics and the melodies, and it, the song was kind of a cross between... Uh, Jimi Hendrix and Sherelle had had mm. this really kind of eclectic, weird type of a vibe. But then that's what we were. We were really abstract, I think. We were organic. That's what the females oh, were. Yeah. You had to be in order to stand, yeah. stand with the funk soldiers, you know. Like I have a dear right. friend, and I want to mention her name, Shauna Hall, too. Shauna Hall, you know, yeah, the, yeah, in the, the house. One of the baddest guitar players in the business. And a She's here right dear now. friend of mine, and she was sprinkling. She went out with, with the funk, too. And I can go on and on and on and talk about all of these incredible females that were in that organization. Uh, but that particular day, what, 15 minutes, we, you know, we were listening to the songs. And then an hour later, we had finished the whole production. And uh, Gary Scheider came to the studio. Uh, 
when he, by the time he got there, he was so happy that we chose his track. I didn't know it was George with uh, Eddie. Right. I mean, I'm sorry, Eddie. Uh, Gary Scheider's track. track. Yeah. I didn't know it was his track. We just know it was a great track. And then he went in and he did some harmonies and he came up with some of the most phenomenal arrangements on the background harmonies that you can even imagine. That was his gift. So he right. went in there and he had us singing all these stacking, all these minor notes. And of course, back in the day, it used to be musically wrong to sing minors against majors. Right, but right, then right, Gary right, right. was unique at doing that. That's why it sounded Love so that. unorthodox because it was different. Yeah. Musically wrong, but all of the musical flaws made it a masterpiece. So that song was finished and I was sitting there like <gasps> beaming <laughs> because... That was our first production, and I just, I just knew, and I, it was fun, and it was easy, and I really realized I knew how to produce at that moment, that day. I learned, I knew that I could produce. You sure do, And too. so I remember Sly was at that studio at the session that day. Sly Stone was there that day. I remember him and George coming up coming up the stairs, and wow, they went over there, and they slapped uh, Gary five, like, yeah, man, that was bad, blah, blah. <laughs> and then Gary said, Don and Malia wrote that track, wrote that song. I just, I just did the track. He said that. Yeah, Gary. Gary for, said Don Gary. and Malia wrote that song, and then the song disappeared. As I, soon as that was pointed out, the I never heard it again, ever to this day. Gone. And you did, I believe you. That's a whole saga in the book. You had a whole saga where you did try to get the track right. You didn't just give yeah. up right away. Yeah, we tried. Yeah, and yeah. We kept asking for, you know, back then we had cassettes, right? Right. We kept asking for a cassette copier. They had DATs. Remember the little DAT tapes? Yeah, too? DAT tape. Could uh -huh, you put uh -huh. it on the DAT? Could you give us? Because there was still a little more things we were tweaking, a little more polishing and coloring we wanted to do. And if that song would have been able to, to drop, then that means that we would have been in-house writers, but we were females. And I don't think they wanted that. Right. There's a one female or two that wrote songs for P Funk. Uh, one is uh, Linda Scheider wrote uh, Gary Scheider's wife. Linda Scheider, wrote, right? Gary's wife. And the other one is Jeanette Washington Perkins from Parlette. Mm -hmm. Those two songs, but then they were the, the parts were very minimal. The fact right. that Malia Franklin and I created this song where we had a fifty fifty percent split on the writers and the melodies. Right was unheard of for that organization and this song got got squashed. Ugh, that's so frustrating. You guys, we're talking to Dawn Silva, the funk queen. She's got a book. I like to call it the Bible. This is an epic story, an epic tale about how the funk is made. I, I got to quit harping on this because I have other stuff I want to talk to you about. But just like you, you have interesting insights on how this is made and you just keep spilling them. And it's like what you said even about uh, the Aqua Boogie song really interested me. Uh, you said that uh, Mudbone and Catfish, like... Catfish Collins, you guys, Mudbone, Mudbone Cooper. You said their contributions were help it make it an avant-garde classic. You called it. Could mm -hmm. you speak on that or say what you meant by that? I thought that was really interesting. Gary Mudbone Cooper is another thoroughbred and out of the organization. Uh, 
when I say unorthodox, it's just completely abstract, different than everybody else. She had a a rhythm that I couldn't master if I tried. That he would used to play on his really. Tambor. Yeah, he used to come on stage barefooted and hear <laughs> these bells all about his ankles and little bells, and then these little bells would be having little rhythms and stuff. And I don't know how you can do these little rhythmic, rhythmic bells and sing his parts, too. I, was, I look at him, he just start laughing. He's <laughs> so strange. But he, he was just so phenomenal. I loved him dearly. And he had this uh, a feel on these tamarines, too, a different feel. And it was gospel. Mm-hmm. But he came up with his own unique rhythms, and then that rhythm feel went on that track and then uh catfish bootsy's brother had personally in my opinion i thought he was one of the more uh talented rhythm guitarist i'm glad to hear you say that yeah in that organization yeah yeah. and very underrated um, all of them were underrated right all of them all of them could have been stars on their own every last one of them you know each one of them but uh he put this rhythm part on that track, and I just didn't understand how the the feel was on the one, but it was going on the one, and then, so it was mm-hmm. going all around the feel of the beat, which it was such an unorth another again with that word unorthodox, an unusual feel, but it reached out and just grabbed you, mm-hmm. so it just gave those those guys gave birth to that track, in terms of putting the funk stamp on it, I knew that. After this, the session was over, even before that song hit the airwave, it was going to be a monster hit. Wow. It was going to be, and that was one of my favorites. So you're just telling me all sorts of stuff I did not know, and I just, I'm just gobbling it up. Okay, I got to get off that, because I could ask you about all these different songs. Um, I want to go back to the Sly Stone connection. So that was a very interesting saga, the a whole thing just about you and Sly and his dog. <laughs> I could talk up, do a whole interview about that. Um, let me ask you something. There seemed to be a distinction that I was kind of surprised by. It sounded like you got paid a lot better when you were with Sly than when you were George. Is it is that true? Like just the the money was better with Sly? Like they took care of that better? Yeah. <laughs> what what was the difference in the organizational <laughs> principle, if you will? Like what organized? How was that getting run or organized? Sly wrote a song called Organized. Organized. That's a great song. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that about him. <laughs> I'm just going to stop talking. That was a song, boy. That was a jam. But yeah, don't, don't get me. I must be sleepy. But anyway, <laughs> no. it was, uh, they had a manager that was, you know, his whole thing was uh, success, 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 you know, mm-hmm. marketable, marketable. And um, Ken Roberts, uh, Ken Roberts was a slice manager at that time, and he was phenomenal. So they had an you know professional uh, accounting and the marketing and publications and all of that stuff. So they were we were on a retainer, uh, whether we were on tour or not. So they paid me by the week, whether I you know was in the studio or if I went home for a month, I still got my retainer check once a week. And then in the wow. studio, like this studio that we're doing this interview in right now. Different fur, yeah. Different fur is what it's called now. Uh, back then, I don't remember the name of it, but Sly cut a lot of tracks in this studio. Right here right, where we're right, sitting right now. Right where we are right now. I, some of the earlier songs were done right here. So I forgot about this place, and I walked in the door. It's like, <gasps> flashback. You wow. Know? But yeah, uh, Sly, we would go in the studio 
it's let's say on a Sunday, mm-hmm. and uh, in the union, we were in the union, and uh, we were getting okay. paid double, triple scale. So if you went in the studio for twelve nice. hours, uh, it was a twelve-hour day. You know that was a thousand-dollar day, nice. and that's with the union. We were going in there every single day. Single scale uh, wasn't as much, but then with the, most of the slice session were always double and single, triple scale. And then usually what he, he's another one of those uh, thoroughbreds that would have you go out and sing a part by yourself. So now you're getting paid single duo, I mean, single mm. scale with one person singing. If there was two people, then it's duo scale. If it's three people, like usually for a background section. Oh, it's very detailed. Three Accounting. girls. Wow. Yeah, three girls. That means it's triple you're getting paid triple scale for the three singers. But if you're singing out there by yourself one-on-one, then you're going to get paid way more than you were with the triple scale. So that's the difference. We got paid union. CBS uh, just paid us, made sure that we got our checks. Um, Interesting. And I did that for four years. We got paid. You know, I got spoiled. I always made, mm-hmm. we made sure that we got all of our money. So if you got called for a session with Slide, you knew you were going to get paid very well. The difference with Georgia had so many with the PFOP, there were so many. It would be kind of hard actually to pay 30 people in the studio, single, <laughs> single duo scale. They wouldn't have the money after. But a lot of people, yeah. With, with that organization, they didn't even go through the union on, on any of those songs that I know of. I know that I sang on quite a few of those hits, but it, none of it went through the union. None of them. They were always like, you got paid. Cash, you got, either got a hundred dollars in a, in a joint. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so any song we know of you singing on, you got a hundred dollars. That's what in it, it was. You got a hundred dollars <laughs> in the joint. So much to ask you about. I can't ask you about everything, you know, know. but um, okay, let me just keep going. So you said, uh, talking about these issues that we were talking about, that Gary and his wife were kind of really overall big allies for you during some of these times. Um, There's hostility towards you even when you joined, uh, when you cross over to joining into George Clinton's group, right? Um, you had one story that I can't even believe, like you were in a diner and Fuzzy Haskins came in and ate your breakfast in front of everybody. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what was his point? Like just bully you? I like don't know. he grabbed day, your breakfast? Like to just this ate day, it? I don't know. I just remember that, you know, I ordered some steak and eggs and scrambled eggs and hash browns and some orange juice. And I was sitting across the table uh, we it, first let me start from the beginning. We were at a truck stop. We stopped at a truck stop somewhere in between gigs and early. It was early morning, and um, Gary was, and Glenda were sitting across. And then I saw Linda kind of lean over her plate, and then Gary said, "Cover up, <laughs> cover said, up." Gary said, "Cover up." I said, "Cover up." And then he's cover. He leaned his body over his plate, and he said, "Cover up." And I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Next thing I know, Fuzzy walked over and he snatched my steak off my plate and he started tearing all into the meat. <laughs> <laughs> Ate my steak and then threw the bone back on the plate. And then 
scooped up my hash browns, stuffed them in his mouth and ate all my scrambled eggs, grabbed my orange juice, drank it and burped and walked, <laughs> walked out the uh, restaurant. And then Gary said, I told you to come up. <laughs> so he already knew about that move. So, yeah, I, I really didn't know that I was a newbie. I yeah. hadn't even been in the organization no more in what? A couple of weeks, maybe. So that was maybe like my initiation or something into the group. I don't know if he was you if he did that, you know, if he just was everybody knew that that's what Fuzzy did. I personally, because, you know, we were like these little debutantes, these little Cali girls in right. the organization. And uh, I remember Gary Gary saying the, that good home training stuff doesn't work out here. Right. So, <laughs> He was right, you know, we had to kind of get catch up, you know, because we were in a whole different organization or different vibe as far as class structure from coming from uh, Sly Stone into Parliament Funkadelic. It was a whole it was a whole another wilder side. And even the way you joined the group is kind of it's a very Funkadelic story. You were, you were at the show that you were doing performing with Sly and Sly was opening for Funkadelic. It was reversed than how it had been previously. He left the tour or something? Something happened where... Yeah, he just, you know, I think it had a lot to do, and I can't really speak for him. I sure. only can assume that he had a a new band that he put together. He didn't have uh, the family stone, you know. He didn't have his family. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, the redundancy of having a, a band that comes in that's not your family, that you've grown up with your entire life, and those little musical flaws and those little sure. things that you 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 need in order to perform that keeps you excited during a performance. But then the, that new band was playing the music exactly like the record every night. I mean, exactly. And they were a great band, but it was it just every single you... night it just sounded like the record. There were nev- never any little nuances or different types of... Uh, Entrepreneur, you know, just uh, innovative, innovative or, yeah. that's the word, innovative uh, musical, to me, uh, creations that were going on to keep him motivated. Yeah. So I think he got really bored with the redundancy of his own creations. And then with Parliament Funkadelic, uh, we sandwiched in between uh, Bootsy's Rubber Band and Parliament Funkadelic, you know, and we're the special guest artists. You, he, night after night, I think that we were getting a spanking. You know, they were blowing us off the stage. They were. <laughs> and that was their job. They're supposed right. to funk us up, right? And they did. And so with him not having his most powerful musicians right. on the stage, which was his family that he's been playing with all his entire life, I think he just simply got up one day and walked off the stage and didn't come back. And you were, um, and then you were invited to a party, Michael Hampton's birthday party or something like backstage or at the tour. Something happened where you, you and Lynn went over to the P-Funk camp pretty quick, I think, like pretty smoothly, right? That was the last day of the show. Yeah, we went over there to a birthday party for Michael's birthday. One thing I did want, you mentioned it before, I want to ask you about is that mutiny scene where you talked about, we were talking about earlier, there's a picture of George with his hands up. Yes. So I want to ask you about that show. So there was a show um, where, who were the leaders? Glenn Goins and Jerome Braley, um, where they want more money, they wanted to raise. What, what were their demands or what do they want from well, From my uh, understanding, it's just like, you know, P-Funk was at the top of the the world. It was one of the greatest bands in the in the industry at that time. And, 
Glenn Gowen's voice to me had catapulted the uh, the Mothership Connection and Bob Gunn and those where he was featured as the lead on that one. And I believe he felt he should be compensated and make more. I think at that time, everybody was getting a weekly salary. Mm -hmm. At least I know I was. Um, and we were, like I said, newbies in the organization. I didn't really understand at the time what was going on. The fact that, you know, just some disgruntled employees and they wanted more money and they were were denied. They were told no. So then the mutiny happened where then 90 percent of the band actually didn't show up for the show. Right. But George got on stage anyway and just kind of almost and you were on stage. All the well, ladies. The girls. Yeah. I think the girls. And you started acapella or something. Yeah. You, the There was the four girls then. It was uh, Debbie Wright, uh, Lynn Mabry, myself and uh, Jeanette. Washington, And there's supposed to be a show, but it's just you all on stage only. Well, that's the first time I think during that particular show, there's some pictures I've seen out there on uh, floating about where the four girls were on the front line with George. And that never really happened until that mutiny show. Right. Where the four of us actually went up front. Mm -hmm. You know, we would sometimes you'd see two or three here and there, but all of us were on the front line that particular show. And the only musicians there on stage was uh, Gary Scheider. And uh, Bernie Worrell. There was nobody else on the stage. There were no other band members at all. So you guys kind of started the show. The audience, it was a full full house, right? A full crowd? Yeah, it was sold out to capacity. <laughs> sold out. So what did you start singing? Just start they doing some really chants? They didn't know. They didn't know that there was a mutiny. They just, the stage was, sure. just, the stage was empty. And they maybe they thought that it was. You're starting uh, it like that on purpose or yeah, something? Yeah, I think that's what they thought. And then if it wasn't for Bootsy's band, because I'm not going to talk about it long. It's in the book. I talk about sure. it. Sure. But if it wasn't for Bootsy's band, uh, I think the, the mothership would have crashed and burned that night. Just so happened Bootsy's rubber band was opening up and. I remember looking behind me and saw all of their musicians rushing to the stage. Wow. And uh, the Just drummer. Just falling in line. Yeah, That's the so drummer, cool. the drummer, uh, bass, Bootsy's band saved, saved P-Funk that night. Wow. They did. Can you talk to me about, because I always like to hear from people that knew him, like what Glenn Goins was like or your impressions of him or your, your just general memory of him as a person. Uh, he was a fun guy, yeah. Uh, Brilliant, talented. Uh, working with Glenn Goins was like a on-the-job training um, where he taught me character parts, not character just parts. even though you're singing a part like, I gotta sing, da 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 Then if you can put your little, I can do a thing under water. I mean, okay. And then you got that uh, that's a, that's the character part of it. Now, if you're just going to sing it all cute and pretty, it's like, I got a string on my thing. When you pull my string, I can do my thing underwater. That's yeah. the cute part. Underwater. <laughs> that's just the, the, put the character voice on there, right? I didn't even know anything about character voices when I first got there. It was just like, you know, I'm singing it correct musically correct which is uh with the classical training it was almost boring for me that's what i was taught until i got with p-funk so i mean there were so many you know things that I, you could talk about that people uh complain about and it was they have the legitimate complaints but then overall everybody says well if it's so bad why did you stay it's because i personally i call it being a slave to the rhythm 
of the okay. line. I was, you know, sometimes people can take what you love the most and use it as a weapon against you to control you, right? And that would be the music. It seemed like regardless of everything that was going on around me that I saw that I had complaints about, it's the music that kept me grounded because I, I wasn't just a fan. I, I was in love with this art form. And it was a, it was a way of freedom and uh, peace for me, too, on the other side of that, you know. So I was learning. Okay. It was, I was going to, I was in a school, Funk 101 FM, kind of like, right? Mm-hmm. So um, with Glenn, he taught me a whole different way of, of uh, character singing and character voices and phrasing and timing. It's different, just like people can put lyrics, when they say funk, lyrics on top of a funk vocal you can have a funky track all you want to but it won't be the funk if you don't have the right flavors or the right ingredients that are floating on top of it so it's more than just a funky bass bass line rhythm rock and rhyme is more than that it's more of the what you're it's like the icing you know and all the little swirls and all the little sprinkles that go on top of it that make it unique Wow, you have so much insight into all of this stuff. Um, Let me ask you this. Um, It really fascinated me in your book, what you were saying about new birth, because we interviewed Robin Russell, uh, RIP Robin Russell. Um, And I was really fascinated, uh, your friendship with uh, James Baker. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about that, because he he had some wisdom that he was talking to you about early in your career. But you said some fascinating things that I've never heard before. You said that George Clinton got his idea for the whole mothership thing from New Birth. They were doing some like experiment with NASA imagery or something. Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, or that, that's a story that he told. Yeah. Uh, James. Well, actually, yeah, James Baker. Um, and another guy named Chris Lander. Chris Lander, that's the name I'm looking yeah, for, a Chris, sound tech, Chris right? Chris Lander was a sound tech. Then. He was a kid back then. He couldn't have been no more than 17, 18. And his brother, Austin Lander, played a, he was a horn player. I'm not, I'm just not sure if he played sax or trumpet. But he was also a new birth. And um, both of those guys told me these stories. Uh, but James, I mean, but James Baker had told me that long before I met Chris Lander, long, long before that, that, you know, back in those days, uh, and this is basically, uh, this, not just in my book, but it's just common knowledge that LaBelle, Parliament Funkadelic, and New Birth were on tour for a while. And I think Parliament Funkadelic was the opening act. LaBelle was the special guest, but New Birth was the headliner. Wow. And then when New Birth first came out, I was just a kid back then, I was a fan of that group as well. They had the oh the whole mothership the extra ET extraterrestrial image really which beca- yeah they did I, I mean, didn't if, realize that if they used to land on stage in these eggs they were UFOs then they these four black eggs the whole new birth right uh-huh. these black eggs would, from another planet would would come down from the ceiling and it would crack open and then then they would come out of the eggs they were beamed down from another planet that was their whole concept. And Clinton was coming out on stage in a coffin. They pushed him out in a coffin, and he, and he was naked in that coffin, and he had on a sheet. Remember that? Yeah, no, you know, that's common knowledge. Though. He didn't have no spaceship. He had a coffin. And then he, they would push him out on the stage. 
And then he'd jump out and would lift up that sheet like, ha-ha! Right? <laughs> he was naked as a, as a blue jay, right? Bluebird, whatever it is. He was just as naked as he could be. But anyway, that was the P-Funk Parliament, I mean, Funkadelic back then. And then, of course, LaBelle was another group that was doing the space age concept with their concepts. Mm. They had a song called Space Children. You remember right, that song? Right, right, sure. That's the first one who dropped that song was oh. LaBelle. It wasn't Parliament Funkadelic. So George is, you know, he's a genius. He's sitting back and he's watching and studying and all of his stuff. And then... According to uh, Baker and um, Chris, they George pretty much borrowed the whole mothership connection, not only just from from Newbert, but from LaBelle as well. But then I think he just took it to a, a whole other level than they did. He took their concept and and embellished it, and you know, and uh, came up with the whole clones of Doctor Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Right? He he took it in a in. in, in, in I think enhanced it is what he did. Sure, sure. Of course, with the music and stuff that he was doing, you know, with the whole, uh, the, the, the bigamist Dr. Funkenstein and, and all of the clones and the star child. And, he t- you know, and of course, people have a tendency to learn to remember fictitious characters more so than they do the real characters. Okay, right. right. The real life characters. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened with that, you know. And I did touch on it briefly in the book because a uh, uh, a lot of people didn't understand where it came from, but I believe that he that he got that idea actually from LaBelle and from New Birth. I just elaborated on it a bit more in my book. Sure, and I, I was happy to see also that you included New Birth. You said New Birth and Sly Stone were like among the first like self-contained black bands uh, writing and producing and performing all themselves. Um, I was really, I thought that was interesting that you included New Birth and just that you spoke about them so highly, and I thought that was really cool because I don't hear about them in history, in memory as much as the other bands, you know. Because nobody talks about yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Nobody doesn't really talk about the self-contained black bands and what they represented in the industry. As you notice in this day and age, how many self-contained black bands are out there right now? <laughs> right, how right. Many, how many? They're making money, I would say, zip. There's that are making money right now on tours. And so I grew up in a time when music was the best in the world because there were hundreds mm-hmm. of self-contained black bands. Remember all the concerts that would come all year round and mm. you could go and see them all. And they were all excellent musicians and excellent artists. And they uh, just took for granted that they were going to always be there. And then one day you look around and those self-contained right. black bands are, are gone. And then I said the nucleus of the self-contained black bands actually started not with really with the with new bird so so to speak more so the first two that actually started it in which i should have elaborated it even more so was james brown and sly stone and mm-hmm. everybody else came after mm-hmm. including new birth but the self-contained black bands when i when you go back to uh new birth is a group called the night lighters the Night Lighters, right, And I think right. they came out maybe around the same time as Sly or maybe even a little before. Right, from they, Louisville, right? They're from Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. But they migrated over to Detroit. Mm-hmm. And to me, to Night Lighters were probably under the radar. Yep. That was probably one of the most successful self-contained black bands in the business at one point, but nobody really knew who they were. Right. They basically just said they were New Birth's backing band. But they were uh, big stars on their own. Uh, there was like, remember the wide world of sports 
entertainment that actually took their songs and right. used to play them. The before. Wide, right, right, Remember right. those? I mean, yeah, it was yeah, way back. Okay. But they used their music actually on all of these top uh, sports uh, shows back in the day. I haven't thought of that show and in a long time. And nobody knew it was the Nightlighters. <laughs> right. But that was the Nightlighters. <laughs> wow. They were... Uh, I wrote in my book about how the Motown, that this club they call the Rooster Tail in Detroit, okay. were the, and all of those songs that were recorded up on the upper deck of that club was the Nightlighters. Wow. All of those hit records, that was the Nightlighters. But nobody gave them the credit. So with James Baker, because him and I had begun great friends, and James Baker was not only the manager of New Birth, he was also a keyboard and a, I think he played keyboards and trumpet as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he managed that group and he took that, that Louisville band to alt to absolute stardom. But when he started fighting against the record companies to, uh, for his royalties and his, his publishing, that's when he became like a, a problem. Speaking of that, didn't your relationship suffer once you signed your contract for Brides of Funkenstein? Was yeah. that what happened? Yeah, what? back in those days, I didn't know anything about reading the contract. What did he take offense to? Um, well, he had a personal vendetta against the whole mothership connection because he felt like they stole the concept from New Birth, first of all. Okay. He had that. Gotcha. It was, that was, goes way back. And then when he read the contract, he says it was, it was not a good contract. And it wasn't. It was a terrible contract was horrible. But then, then again, I wanted to be a part of the Parliament Funkadelic Empire. So I went ahead and signed it. And he was so angry at me for signing it that we, we didn't speak for many, many years after that. He was so upset with me for wow. signing it. That's intense. And then talk to me. Let's talk about the Brides of Fungus sign. Um, so the band, that was a cool band. You had Cash on the drums, uh, Blackbird on guitar. You would open for P-Funk shows and then also perform with P-Funk a lot? I think the best show that I remember was Madison Square Garden was probably a great one, but that was second. The first one was at a little small club called Starwood in uh, Los Angeles on Melrose. Okay. And uh, that was our debut performance. And then we borrowed Bootsy's band, right? We had his musicians, his horns, and again, Frankie Cashwadi was on drums, Nice. Uh, Jeff Cherokee Bun out of uh, Bun, Baltimore, on bass. Dwayne Blackbird McKnight, of course, uh, lead guitar because he's out of the Headhunters camp, right? Mm-hmm. Then we had a guy named uh, Gary Hudgens on keyboard. Nice. It was a small unit. It was only just the uh, five, I believe, and then the, then the horn player, Maceo cool Par- Maceo Parker from James Brown's band and Fred Wesley and. We had uh, Chris Cush uh, Griffin and and uh, Richard uh, Gardner. Yeah, so we, Rick. Yeah, Rick Gardner. Him. We had yeah. uh, Bootsy's horn players and half his band. That's what we had. And uh, we didn't even hardly, I remember we didn't even hardly rehearse that gig. It was all in a raw. I think we had a rehearsal about a week maybe. And we burnt that club down. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, that was my greatest, fondest memory when we had that band. And I think that's the band that should have stayed together. You think that's a band that should have stayed together? That's the band that should have stayed together. Because at one point, didn't Dennis Chambers, like, wasn't he in the group playing yeah, drums? Yeah, Dennis Chambers. That's is, a whole different thing. He's one of the greatest, to this day, the drummers in the world right now. Right. He was fusion and, you know, very fusion rock. Right. At first, I kind of complained that they were bringing in this eclectic funk rock drummer to play along with funk. I didn't think that was going to work. Right. I was wrong. 
that's when I went over and we crossed over. The day that Dennis Chambers stepped on stage to play with the Brides of Funkenstein is when the Brides of Funkenstein changed and went from uh, R&B funk to rock funk market. And I just like blew my head away because, of course, Black Workman Knight was from the Headhunters and he was all pretty much a rock anyway. He was, uh, he was totally a Jimmy Led Zeppelin mm -hmm. and the bunch, right? Mm -hmm. Any rock uh, guitarist was some of the best out there. That was it. That was a uh, Blackbird. So with Dennis playing rock, like it was like a machine gun behind us. Which was we're supposed to be on this little cute little R and B group, and you got this. <laughs> <laughs> like, wait a minute. So we had to keep up with the band. And next, but then I liked it. It gave me the. It gave me. It was a challenge. And then I was like, "What is this?" And they said somebody said it was called funk rock. I said, "We we just gave birth to me." <laughs> and I've been a funk rockster ever since. Right on, right on. Okay. I'm a funk rockster too. I am. I'm a funk rockster. <laughs> talking about the funk queen don silva get your book donsilva.com i gotta talk to you about because we can't just talk about p-funk all day i want to talk to you about solo deals you were offered and the wonderful album you eventually made and then also how you managed to sell it successfully on an independent tip which is very important um so over the years, you were offered solo deals. Uh, they sounded kind of interesting from various people. So, for example, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, was that on the table at one point? That was with uh, the Total Experience out of, with the uh, Total Experience's uh, record, independent record company that had the, the Total Gap, Experience. Yeah, they had the Gap Band and they had uh, Yarbrough and People. Right. Um, I think DJ Rogers, remember DJ Rogers yeah. was on there and... I love Yarbrough and people. Penny Ford and a bunch of other uh, artists that were over there. I think the Gap Band was their main blood source, though. But right, uh, Lonnie Simmons wanted to produce an album on two females. I was one of them, and another lady uh, named Val Young. And he was oh, gonna, okay. And uh, he wanted Jimmy Jam and Terry to produce it, but I think the they couldn't work out the 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 term, you know, the terms of the uh, agreements and stuff. I think Total Experience wanted too much. So they kind of backed out on that deal. Um, moving on further from there, I actually uh, got a deal signed to uh, with the uh, uh, Polygram Records mm -hmm. with uh, the lead singer of the Gap Band, Charlie Wilson, producing it. And again, oh yeah, that was what Jam Until Dawn. Or that was Jam Until the Break of Dawn. Jam Until the Break of Dawn. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that was a uh, without getting into a whole lot of the reasons why that one didn't come out. Uh, that it didn't work out with the uh it was never released that must have been frustrating well, did you record was, a lot of songs on it that? was a great album i believe it would have mm -hmm. probably had a couple of big hit records on there and i had sounds like it would have been i had the amazing. original gap band musicians on there one was a guy robert wilson wow was one of the baddest bass right. players in the business was on there and uh Jimmy uh Macon was another one that wrote a that played on a lot of the gap band records so actually had a sound that was kind of like a cross between the Gap Band and P-Funk, that kind of vibe. Um, 
It never happened. Uh, a lot of uh, personal things got in the way of that record. You know, the the album that I was doing for Polygram had a mixture of the Gap Band meets the P-Funk, P Parliament Funkadelic, had that same flavor. Sounded like it would have been bad as hell. It was bad. I still have those tracks, by the way. And one Ooh. thing good about the deal that I did with Atlantic Records, not Atlantic, Polygram, the deal I did with Polygram Records, I walked with all the masters. I didn't realize that. So you do, ha you're, those are in your possession. I have them all. I have wow. all the masters. I have that entire album. Do you have the right to release them? I have writers and I have the rights to them. I basically uh, was in my contract that I can maintain my masters. So I wow. walked with them all. I still have them all. Good and, for you, and it was by the way. It was produced by Charlie Wilson, the Gap Band. So the the record never came out. A lot of personal reasons that are in that book. As oh, to that's why a whole saga in the book, you guys. Whole, you got to read it. That one is pretty much... That's a that's whew. deep story. So it didn't come out. By the way, it, I didn't realize how deep that was. It's it catches you off guard. Yeah, you're not it expecting really did. it. It really did. But then I like to do that. I like to when you're reading. It's just like a you're not expecting. She did. What did she just say? Yeah, me and my boy Scott were talking about that earlier. We're like, yeah, wow, it, that was heavy. But okay, but the the uh, but the uh, end of the story is a good one because you did come out with a great album. And that is All My Funky Friends. And Absolutely. that's a, one that I personally love. When I first heard it, not to say that I was surprised, but I was just so glad that it was so consistently good song to song. And it's a banger. And then you released it independently. You had deals like going on in Europe. Can you? Uh, that was just a great story. You were also, by the way, you were one of the first people to really use like online forums, I think, to like pump up funk and keep the funk alive. Yeah, I You're actually, an innovator with I was that. one of the first to do that. Uh, I did actually try to follow the same, you know, protocol and formats of going to record companies with that All My Funky Friends album. And they basically told me this was, you're talking January 2000. And they were all told me that funk was dead. You're right, right, right. You remember that part in the yep. book? Yeah, they told me that there was no longer a market for funk. And I thought that was a little ludicrous and strange That's like the early 2000s we're talking well about? they were talking yeah we're talking the y2k remember everybody was remember mm -hmm. y2k yep from 1999 over into 2000 that's when i finished the my uh, cd and i went to a few labels and they turned me down because they said that the funk market was no longer a viable entity is what they said it was it was done and i thought that was not accurate because i had just did Woodstock with Bernie Worrell and the Woo Warriors. I was going out on tour with Bernie, which I talked about nice. in the book too. So yep. moving on, we've, <laughs> we went past that part. But um, we played Woodstock 1999. It was 300,000 funk fans there. So for me to go to a label and they're telling me funk was dead, I was like, uh-uh. Right. It's not dead. It's, it's just as powerful as ever. And I remember there was a group that opened up called the Insane Clown Posse. You remember them? Yeah. <laughs> so they're doing Funkadelic now. They were doing Funkadelic that day at that concert. And I was like, wait a minute. That's some P-Funky stuff right there. That's funk rock. <laughs> they so, were? And the fans were going nuts. Wow. So I was like, that market's not dead. That market's very much alive. But then for some reason, they were not uh, promoting it. To me personally, I thought they were systematically trying to eliminate it. So I took that personal. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, so you, I can't put funk out. He says, no, and nobody's. One uh, individual, uh, basically from one of the labels, basically told me funk was dead and need to stay dead, and he told me to go plant a flower garden. Damn. And that I was an aging funketeer, and nobody wants to hear that anymore. I said, really? So now I had a mission. 
So oh, I yeah. decided I was going to do my own uh, independent record and started my own label. And I only had one artist on the label, and that was me. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to put it out myself. And I did, and I ended up selling over a quarter of a million CDs out of my kitchen from a dead market, supposedly. Wow. And um, I did that back in the day because remember MySpace? Yep. MySpace was around the first uh, between 2000 to 2005 or something. And I had a million followers on MySpace. Wow. And nice. about 30% of them bought whatever I had. So that's where it went from me doing an independent uh, CD myself on my own label. A label is called Silver Sounds. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, it didn't still in the States, they were pretty turning their back on funk rock over here, but they weren't abroad. They weren't across the waters. And so I went to uh, all these different countries and did independent license deals, Holland, Germany, France, uh, Japan, uh, China, Thailand, Sierra Leone, Africa, everywhere. And so, um, the first one is the license deals. They were bringing me over to the first one was Paris, France, and they manufactured 15,000 CDs just in Paris alone. So I went over there and stayed months and just did a whole lot of con- shows over there just in Paris. And then the second, I'm, you know, it was a bunch of them. Then, uh, of course, I miss Barcelona and Spain and everywhere. So then I go over to Holland, and Holland did a license deal, and the uh, company, uh, the production company or the record company was called... Uh, Yavance Youngins was the name of it. It was these little 30-year-old little rockers that had a little money to spare. And mm-hmm. their parents owned a tobacco company. And I've come in, unbeknownst to me, they financed all the North Sea Jazz Festival concerts. Oh. You know, over in Cape Town, South Africa, whatever. So they had this funk underground background singer who put out her own CD on her own label headlining the North Sea Jazz Festival along with Shaka Khan, Herbie wow. Hancock, and the Yellow Jackets. Remember that group? Yeah, the Yellow Jackets, sure. And uh, sold out the, the uh, 7,000 capacity venue in two days and went over there. And basically, according to Holland, I had the most electrifying performance at the North Sea Jazz Festival. Nice. And then from that point on, it just, psh, that all my funky friends blew up. And I, it, it just it's still selling to this day. So a quarter of a million uh, CDs later, uh, uh, I proved to the to the naysayers and to the corporate uh, record companies in the states that there was a very viable market for the funk. I call it funk rock now because that's what the type type of music that I do, and it still is to this day. Actually, it's even bigger today than it was then. So that's why yeah, I can, that's, that's right. why I continue on. That's right. It is. And I like how you talk about in the book about funk soldiers and the concept of being a funk soldier. Well, you know the concept of a funk soldier? I think it's being out there fighting the fight, making sure you're representing the funk, make sure you're keeping it out there, even when there's haters trying to stop you. Absolutely. It's perfect because I call we're down here in the trenches. That's why I said we're funk soldiers, funk warriors down here in the trenches fighting to keep this art form alive. And it keeps growing and growing. And so now that I've gotten older and then I just I don't have the, the, the stamina, stamina or the endurance to keep it going like I want to. I, I have all these high and great expectations, but I want to pass it on to those who want to continue on with that legacy to keep this uh, art form, to keep the funk alive, really, literally, because it is it's not fair. I grew up with it. 
And to me, funk is spiritual. It's from the heart. It's a if you're come if you're stressed out, it's it's just a it's alleviate it alleviates mm-hmm. pain. It does. Mm-hmm. It just makes you want to laugh and cry at the same time. And I was blessed to be able to grow up and have that in my life, and it's missing nowadays. That's why if, if everything seems so empty, it's because it's the music. You said it's not fair. Huh? It's not fair for the kids <laughs> to growing up today that don't have that opportunity like I had. Right. So I want to right. touch as many as I can possibly. And when you asked and you reached out to me, Ace, with you and your and your collaborates, you know, here and your funk soldiers to have me here, I was totally honored. It made it touched my heart hmm. because uh, there's there's uh, literally hundreds of thousands of us. And then what we have to do is just to find the means for us all to come together under one funky umbrella and keep this art form going and to pass it on from our children's into our children's children. And that's my mission. Um, there's a passage in the Bible. It's Luke something. It says that he who has uh, given much will have much to do. And that's what I'm doing. And then I'm going to keep doing till I can't do it any longer. And that's why I'm here today in this eclectic, uh, nostalgic studio that I started out with Sly Stone 35 years ago, and it's still going strong because of people like you, Ace. And it's such, uh, an, it's such an honor to be here today. Oh, no. You're going to make me cry over me here. Too. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, speaking of that, there's one song, there's a ballad on the album, and I didn't re- realize the backstory that was kind of um, beautiful. Uh, your travels in Brazil... Um, you did pretty big shows, it sounds like, with the Platters and did all kinds of tours across Brazil. Uh, what is this, in the 1990s, uh, late 90s or something? Yeah, from 1995 to 2008. I know your experience there uh, touched your heart a lot. You had a lot of interesting experiences there that made you reflect on uh, just, you know, culture, where people come from, their different backgrounds and experiences. Could you just tell well, me a little bit about that. Kind of like how the book ends, you know, with the platters and, and is how it starts with my African indigenous European lineage, mm-hmm. which you don't read in autobiographies. Right. And then some of the publishing companies that I went to thought that people would be bored with, didn't want to hear. They wanted to cut out the first 15 years. You of were my, speaking German as a little girl living in Germany? Fluently. Wow. Yeah, I did. So my father was uh, in the Air Force, and so I was an Army brat. Uh-huh. So I spent the early part of my life just traveling from one part of the world. And uh, Germany ha- ha- you know, held the happiest memories for me there. And because um, my mother could play piano, too, you know, a few songs. And there was this German family there that just embraced us and took us in. So I think I've started honing my uh, early, uh, they were my first audience because <laughs> they were teaching uh-huh. me how to speak German. And, you know, that's in the book as well. But I did talk about me, the the lineage in terms of, uh, let's start the book off. The first line of the book yep. is, uh, starts off with uh, whole indigenous nations have melted away like snowballs in the sun, but not all perish. Some escaped and went up to the north, to the uh, the Rocky Mountains and along the North Carolina border in Tennessee, right? Mm-hmm. That was my great-grandfather. And he, he lived up in the in the caves. And he came down when he was 12 years old because the militia had mur- brutally murdered his entire family. But back in those days, between 1888 and 1890, was, most, was probably the most dangerous time for a living uh, native in here in this country. Mm-hmm. So that my... Uh, 
on the other side of my family, he met my great-grandmother, and they used to hide him in the walls of the cabins because the militias was looking for him. Oh, my God. But his last name was, he called him Red Stick, Red Stick Creek. And so he was the last of the Red Stick Creek and the Tusagali Cherokees. I talked about that in my book briefly. That was a great part in your book. Yeah, I talk about that. And then some of the uh, publishing companies that I went to didn't think that that was was interesting and nobody would want to read that. And I'm finding out that out of all the things I said about the music industry, which a lot of people pretty much know a lot about it, uh, I've heard stories, they were more intrigued by that that history, the indigenous history, than they were the rest of the book. So I was honored. I'm happy that I left it in there. So I'm very proud of that. But that goes from not just the indigenous lineage that I have in my bloodline, but all the way back to towards the end of the book when one of the platter singers, original platter singers named Zola Taylor, mm-hmm. she took ill and she, and I went out and subbed for her, I thought, for just one gig. And it turned into 14, turned it turned into 14 years yeah. of, t- of going with the platters. And so can you imagine going from Parliament Funkadelic to the platters? And you have, I like in the book, you have like uh, the newspaper c- clippings of like, you were like on the cover, front cover of like <laughs> magazines and newspapers in Brazil. Well, you know, I took my little, my, I took what I learned from Gary and Glenn and Eddie and George and Bootsy and Bernie and all of those funksters with me on the stage with the platters. I didn't realize it at the time. That that's what I was doing. But then something about the magic of the funk actually f- infiltrated into the platter's music. That's why I say a funk is just so universal. It's not mm-hmm. just it's just the, the funk. It just has all these ingredients of every aspect of music. Every genre of music that you can imagine is in the funk, including the platter's music. Of course, all of their music is done in uh, minor chords. Right, right. It's very, it's kind of like somber. It's sad. It's yeah, just, yeah. I was over there. I was so, geez, just, <laughs> I was depressed. I was like, uh. But you said people, the audience, people in the audience would be very moved, right? Oh, man, they cried on every show. I was like, oh, just crying. I was like, uh, <laughs> uh, I just want to go home. But anyway, after the first uh, tour, which was four months in Brazil, and I started realizing that, uh, Someone in the band had basically said to me, because I started going out by myself mm-hmm. under the spotlight, and I would sing a song all by myself. There was a song, uh, what's her name? Uh, Karen Carpenter's. Uh, Karen Carpenter. Close to You. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a number one hit over there, probably still to this day. It's mm-hmm. one of the biggest ballads ever. And so I chose to sing that one, but I put a little R&B funk flavor to it. I kind of put my own spin on it, and it just worked. And I walked under that spotlight by myself and sang that song. And then when the song was over, someone said, Silva, you have just uh, made your transformation from a funk act to a class act. And that's what I did. I went over to Brazil with the platters as a sub, and I found myself over there. And you found I, yourself I there. found myself. And after all those years, I didn't even realize that all the groups I had been working with, you know, I was a bit player. I was sprinkling parts. Mm-hmm. Then I found myself uh, over there in Brazil. So I wanted to write about that country and how it's all connected with the African indigenous lineage, European, here in this country, all the way over there. Yeah. It's wow. all connected. Yep. It's all connected. It is. It's all connected. My gosh. Don Silva, it's been an honor talking to you. Thank you so much for coming here. Thank you for having me. I'm talking about the funk queen, Don Silva. 
It's a limited pressing. You gotta get her auto bio. You gotta read it. It's a table book, you understand? It's the best of both worlds. It's a full autobiography and it has beautiful, almost three-dimensional pictures really in it. Yes, sir. It's just it's just fantastic. And it's not just because it's about your life, it's actually a great contribution to funk history. And I'm proud of you for doing that. Um, b- before we leave, could you just say like what's coming up? I know you said something about like music coming out, uh, working on stuff. Well, what's before, going on with you? You're well, doing some songs with Shauna Hall. I mean, what's going on? Yeah, Shauna Hall and I have a, a project that we started on some years back. Uh, one is a it's an Afrofuturistic. Uh, it's fiction that happens in another planet, right? And nice. She's got all of these uh, funk rock songs that she's been writing most of her life that happens to to fit. And then we've got a story. That sounds awesome. Yeah, and it's, a, it's I think, four books. And I've learned my lesson about not putting everything in one book. So it's like, <laughs> it's got, it's got, I think it's like four parts. Part one is like, you know, on a whole other planet, but I'm not going to tell everybody what it is. It's so unique. And then uh, Sean and I got together and we st- I started listening to her songs. I got so excited. I wanted to cry because they're just perfect. It's a perfect marriage between this next book that we're doing. And it's an e-book. It's a, it's a musical e-book that has this storyline. Um, uh, I ain't gonna, Well, anyway, it's, it's a fiction book. That, that's the next wow, project. Wow, that sounds great. Then I have the, the songs that I started working on before COVID. I was actually in the studio Okay. We're close to finishing it. It was about this EP with six songs, and three of them with Bernie Morell's on there. And that's some of the stuff mm. that Bernie and I actually yeah. uh, started doing before he started getting wow. sick. And then um, I was just finishing them up, just starting talking October 2019. I went back in the studio. I needed a 24 track studio because they're digit, they're, they're analog. Mm-hmm. I can't, the Pro Tools and all that just didn't capture. That funk, I needed a real right. st- studio <laughs> like this one <laughs> to, hint, hint. to finish it. And then, boom, uh, COVID hit and all the studio shut down. So We got to get that product finished. Yeah, so I uh, that ho- hopefully, and I'm putting it on the prayer list that it drops uh, sometime this year or beginning of next year. I'm, I'm thinking it's going to happen this year for those songs because I've been— I don't want to do the same thing that Stephen LaBelle did with that book and the pictures and sit on this Just funk. Just have it, yeah. Sit on the sit funk on the all funk these years and then they're lost. <laughs> right, right, so right. So I definitely want to get that done. And uh, Shauna and I, we're going to be working on that next. That's uh, that's the next venture. And I believe that the collector's edition of this book will be probably be sold out in about six months. I think they're going to be gone. And um, then from that point on, we'll see where, where that goes, if it's going to be a ebook or something but i everybody keeps telling me not to change the magic of this book like yeah, that it's so magical i agree with that they don't want me to change it so maybe that we might go do or you know reissue it i'm not sure i can't think that far you ahead think you might, yeah right 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 but yeah that's that's <laughs> what's on the horizon so one day at a time that sounds exciting and i can't wait to see that um all right well thank you for coming out i want to do a part two sometime and, uh, you know, good luck to your son later, Bolin. Hope he does well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we'll, take, uh, we'll take some pictures before you leave if that's okay. We'll use it for fine. the website and that's stuff. You could use me. it from promo. We'll hold up some books. Yes, sir. All right. All right. right on. Okay. Get it, you guys. The Funk Queen, Don Silva. Smell you later. Smell you later.
Just love the way you like, and that's a fact. 